the space cave another little gap between episodes i apologize uh this collection of episodes uh or this interview with john lane this conversation has a series of events including um well we'll talk about it in the episode but we tried this once before and then the power kept going out and then i i lost the files and a whole fiasco of things and then that threw off some scheduling, and then other guests had to reschedule. And anyway, off the rails it went. And I apologize. We finally got back together and recorded anew. And I managed to salvage about 20 minutes, I think, of the previous chat. So that'll go in the Patreon. We reference it a little bit here. But overall, it makes sense without hearing the first one, um, which included a lot more about his... Um, history with music, his, uh, how he got, um, where he is as, as Dr. Music, as I call him, John Lane, a fantastic gentleman. I hope you like this chat. Here's part one. Ryan, hey Dave. Hey John, look at you? us. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm recording this to the cloud. It probably already alerted you to that. Yes. I have batteries in the Zoom. I think we have a triple fail safes at this point. So we and I and I'm recording my end, and I have the recording from last time as well that I can send to you. If there's anything that you feel is salvageable or you want to go through it, Thanks. I have it. I can send it to you. That'd be really funny to put in to like the Patreon just one part of a conversation. <laughs> like I, I bet I know what Dave was saying here, <laughs> but maybe because. I like I mentioned I found that about 20 minutes of it salvaged and I haven't listened to it all the way through. It's really strange recovering a drive because it it just goes through and like grabs everything and it makes one gigantic long file. It basically says oh. your drive, your disk or your SD card as you know it has folders and has some differentiation about like the compartments where we put it, but in reality, it's just a bunch of data. Here it all is. And so you can just drag the the cursor through it and when i found when i heard your voice it was it was like finding gold in a weird way of like i had tried all these different folders and using all this data recovery stuff and it would be like we found this and this and bizarre names or things that were named incorrectly the the wrong date and i'd be like maybe that's it so i'd recover it and then listening to listening through it it would some of them would be like a regular chat and it would you'd be dragging the timeline thing through it and then just wedged in the middle would be like a sketch recording I had done or someone that I was recording for something else just right in the middle of it so you really had to pay attention like what is in this gap it wasn't neatly like here's this thing and then here's this recording and then here's this one very bizarre so that's really weird so what what actually happened the power went out and that that's what happened with your yeah I just had I'd gotten so used to having the zoom plugged in uh that i never and i have friends that only use batteries and now i see why probably it's well even then if the batteries die you know you have a a gauge to let you know like oh your batteries are getting low you better change them and you can use phantom power i had just gotten used to like ah I'll just plug it in thinking like if the power goes out all that happens is like the batteries take over and so you do have kind of a fail safe there and i just had done that so long the batteries had died and I didn't notice. And so when the power went out, it just completely dropped out, which was my fault that I didn't check. When I turned it back on, when the power came back on, it would show there's a file there. And it would have a name like it normally does. And I'm like, oh, whew, it saved it. But what was happening is it was just a file with zero bytes. So there are like all these tutorials, like how do you recover a file with zero bytes? Because like I mentioned, the disk having 
a, a yard sale of data, it's in yeah. there somewhere. It just didn't okay. have time to get uh, rendered and turned into like a proper file with the, the data attached to the name. Wow. <sighs> so one of those dumb errors that when you make your your life immediately now gets saddled with like hours of new just like if you lose a phone or your driver's license or something, like, ah, it's no big deal. I'll get a new one. And then you're standing in line at the DMV like, really wish I hadn't done that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, well, you know, when I was doing my podcast, there were a couple. Uh, my setup was also going into a Zoom. And my problem wasn't I – didn't, I didn't have power issues or battery issues or anything like that, uh, thankfully. But I would forget to push record. <laughs> you know, so we'd start, we'd just start going and chatting and going. And then I'd look over there and realize that I hadn't hit the record button. And I'd have to say, I'm so sorry. I have not recorded the last 20 minutes or whatever. And we'd have to start over. And, uh, you know, you never quite capture the same, you know, energy or whatever, you know, because I want to go back and let's catch up with that. I want to make sure we get that point that you said or whatever. And, uh, it's just never, it's just never quite the same. So yeah, um, like you said, not all conversations have to be recorded and podcasted and it's fine. You know, you're a good okay. sport about it. And I, it is probably beneficial that you had made a similar blunder in your, in doing it to know that like, you can tell yourself that, ah, you know, every, not, does everything have to be media or data these days or, or content? Can something just exist but I think when you get together with your friends and you're both wearing headphones, you've committed to like, well, let's let's not just go down and have a beer together. We've you're agreed that... to a certain level of professionalism, <laughs> and you've uh, yeah. missed the mark entirely. If um... we had agreed to meet somewhere and you had and you go, oh, whoa, whoa, just a second, I, I have to take this, and you wander outside, I go, yeah, no problem. Do you want me to order something else? And then you go, da, da, da. You're, you're already on your phone over the show. Da, da, da. I'm good. That would be a standard get together of like if you did that in a podcast, someone would be like, dude, that's really unprofessional. Right. But the, so anyway, there's a million ways to look at it. Like, ah, we're just hanging out, shooting the breeze. Yes, but <laughs> beyond that, it, the more I thought about it too, I was really trying to convince myself. This is, yeah, it's a conversation. Like, there's lots of conversations in the world. But what you had talked about, you know, your project, the the gravity of it was it's heavy the more i thought about yeah. it i was like i hate that i lost that i would have much rather lost and not you know not to say like this other conversation was terrible but there have been conversations where i think yeah i i don't think by losing it you have to get into any kind of a mental state to re address it or, or re-enter it if that yeah, makes any sense you no know, that's true it's just not the same it, it, you know you can't recreate you know, it's it's going to be a different conversation just for the nature of uh, it's a different day. It's a different time. We have different, you know, slightly different perspective than the last time we tried it or whatever. So, yeah, but it's cool, man. No worries. All right. Cool. Yeah, yeah I um and, and the 20 minutes does exist. I'll try to include that. Maybe it's just as a Patreon and we'll likely reference it. I've only had this sort of error once before, and that was with um, Josh Radner, who's one of the probably the most famous person to do this show. And we always would get into these very existential kind of conversations. And at that time, I was recording to a computer and to the recorder. I didn't have a cloud option then, but two two blinking lights looking at me. And we got 40 minutes in, and I looked down, and they're both still blinking when they should be solid red. <laughs> so that same feeling you had of like, oh, man, like I have someone who would go to a studio or a, a movie making lot and the people at the gate would go, go on through. Hey, thanks. That level of like, this is one of the most prestigious or difficult to enter places. It not in the world. It's not like, um, get into NSA stuff or something, but not anyone can just waltz through that gate. You gotta, and especially for the guard to kind of know you, Oh, you're here all the time shooting a television show. That's in syndication. You people know your face, <laughs> go to this, go to this weirdo's garage and sit down and have him, <laughs> Forget to record for 40 minutes. Pretty stupid. Uh, but he was a good sport. And we just kept referencing, like, oh, it's the basement tapes. It's these lost sort of tapes that <laughs> bands have. And, and you know, you're a percussionist. You know that yeah, those sort of yeah. mythical stories. They recorded six hours straight, man. And then when the end, <laughs> the records were all burned up. Like, no. Yeah, it was a great. Everyone agreed it was the greatest music session to ever happen, man. Those that only, those happen. Only three so. people have ever heard it, you know, and it's in bootleg <laughs> in somebody's garage somewhere. And 
somebody will find it in an estate sale in 20 years from now. And yeah, I yeah. get it. Yeah. But I luckily, I think this is included in the 20 minutes remaining that I remembered, you know, you getting your PhD and me suggesting you use the nickname Dr. Music. That's in there. Feels good. <laughs> And did you get the bit where I said, I don't have a PhD, I have a DMA and doctor of musical <laughs> arts and that people with PhDs will get really upset if you say that I have Yeah, I think that's what prompted the doctor music because I'm a doctor okay. of musical <laughs> arts. You would reference like being on a plane next to someone and I go, what do you do? And you're like, well, it's hard to explain. I do percussion. And then I was like, oh, well, you should say <laughs> I'm doctor music. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's such a good idea. I think that'd be uh, so. If I sat next to someone like, whew, Cleveland, buckle in. Uh, what brings you to Cleveland? I'm Dr. Music. I'd get a real kick out of that. I would enjoy that's that. That's where the conversation would end for most people, you know? <laughs> You'd be like, oh, okay. All right, then. Yeah. Um, oh, but then we, you know, we had a thing that I liked is that we talked about inequality in in people who are serve serving sentences or have served long prison terms 20 30 plus years and i was explaining this whole long thing and this might be in there but i i, I just think for the sake of it the again not to use the word gravity or like the heaviness but the the feelings that exist that a human being can endure people know like nelson mandela's story but there are so many dozens hundreds of people that have been day after day waking up to clink, 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 a prison door clanking open and out. And they step out and look left and right and turn to your right and they walk down to like the mess hall. And every step of it, every day, they're going, I, I can't believe this. And I was telling you about the story of having someone uh, not really try to break into our house, but took some screens off our windows, scared us. Right. Uh, a couple weeks later, a detective being like, hey, can you come down and try to ID this person? And as I was driving to a jail, to like a, a booking center, that thought crossed my mind of like, what if a vehicle similar to mine was like on a traffic cam and someone loosely described as me matched my description and they said, well, why don't we just detain you here? And next thing you know, like there's someone comes in and goes, that's him. And I'm like, well, what? And then my alibi is, I don't know where. I think I was just watching TV. What were you watching? I don't remember. And then the part that we talked about that I thought that was so heavy that when you, skipping ahead, when you put on this performance, people not being able to stay in the room is that moment of me. So me extrapolating that out and thinking, all right, so someone IDs me and I'm in jail and I call, I go, you're not going to believe what happened. This is so wild. Someone has my exact car and they look kind of like me and they were in this scene. Do you remember that day? Yeah. What were you doing? I'm pretty sure I was watching this movie. Can we like get Netflix to verify that I was watching this thing? Like, yeah, but that doesn't mean you were actually there. It could have just been playing. Oh, no. And then you sit through pretrial hearings and motions and then an actual trial. And then you're wearing certain clothes going, well, the jury's certainly got to know that like I was watching TV that I wasn't that person. And you hear we, the jury, find the person guilty. And I laugh at that just in that like from your own eyes, from feeling that feeling, you couldn't get up. You you'd just kind of laugh at like, there's no way this is the the world I live in. This isn't the paradigm that I exist within. That I'm put your hands behind your back. Wait, wait, wait guys. I, okay, this went on long enough. This is months and months now. I thought someone was gonna step in at some point and go, gotcha. And now where am I going? Like, put on these. You gotta go do this cavity search. And this is your new home for thirty plus years. When you were talking about the prisoner or the. I, I would you call him a parolee now or the exonerated person Ex exoneree I believe is the term that okay yeah the exoneree uh, yeah. I know like the Central Park Five are the exonerated five right and that that can be like a very sensitive term of I'm not former inmate I'm an exoneree I'm someone who never did a crime right and, and there's also that I mean there's so many there's so many elements to this but there's also that of getting the getting their records expunged after they're exonerated, then there's also a process to like get that, all of that stuff off the record. The, um, I think I told you the story of Clarence Harrison, who was um, um, in Georgia, the, the first person that the Georgia Innocence Project uh, was, uh, got exonerated. And you describe almost the exact um, story that he tells about his situation, which was he, you know, he was picked up in his neighborhood. He just happened to be sort of looked like the person that had committed the crime was in the neighborhood 
totally had a alibi you know his, he was with his family i don't remember the story exactly but he was you know sort of picked up and swept into the system and identified with eyewitness you know said yeah that's that's the guy picked out of a lineup and that's how a lot of that that's how a lot of those uh happen you know people are picked out of lineup they might have had a previous record or something and i mean you know but anyway uh, they didn't do the they didn't do the crime and so his story he was telling the story in a panel that we were on with him and and he got to the end of his story and he was saying about that moment when he's in the courtroom and they said you know you're guilty he said exactly the thing you, you you just said which was like he was looking around and waiting for someone to come in and say no 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 this isn't right like where you know he was thinking like where where are the people that are supposed to help me here i'm i did not do this and that was his experience exactly and, and off to jail he went he was in jail for 18 years you know, um, before the Innocence Project in Georgia came along. And um, and so anyway, it's just, um, yeah, that's that's very real for people, you know. It makes you think about it, for me, like in, in human nature, you're around kids, and you can remember being a kid, and there was there are a lot of times just, a, that kid lies. And kids that lie have no problem. Did you put that there? No, immediate, like, that's their first impulse is, no. But yeah, that's you've got purple juice all over your face, and that toy has purple juice all over it. You didn't—that's not you, no. And some people continue that through a lifetime. And liars, people who cheat and steal and do bad things, they also lie. So many people who murder and commit crimes go, "No, no, I wasn't—that wasn't me." And they're very convincing. And so, as a jury, some of them might be sitting going, "This guy's good," and you're like, "You want to just probably stand up, especially." Maybe you you take the stand and your defense team is like, do not do that. And you're like, but I'm innocent. Like, mm, everyone says that. It doesn't matter to a jury. You're going to say something dumb, your body language, something's going to cue them in a way. You're going to seem too slick or charming. Like, telling the truth? Yeah. Sit over there. Maybe you fight them. You, I'm getting up there. And then you turn and you look to them and you go, please, I was at home. I didn't do this. I just matched this description. And they huddle up afterward and go... Something about that guy. I just didn't trust that. And you're like, but I'm not a liar. I'm not the juice kid. I'm telling the truth. And it's because people lie. It's because they're so good at it. We can't tell. And that, so luckily now we have forensics and things that right. hopefully give us an advantage. in when it comes to humans, oh, there's that documentary well, the, with uh, – oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. I was just going to say, you know, back to the kind of the eyewitness testimony. That's what um, Taryn Simon's – the innocence which is the which was the show that we you know first saw that got us into this issue to made the piece that inspired us to make the piece to begin with i mean all of those photographs that she took are people that were convicted of crimes uh, that they were innocent and were she took them to either the scene of the crime or the scene of their alibi and took these huge you know portraits and her point in making this book was that um her, the line is technology's ability to blur truth and fiction. And a lot of these were photo lineups. You know, you take a picture of someone, they have a, some, maybe they have a resemblance to this other person. They're picked out of a photo lineup or they're picked out of a actual lineup and the fallibility of, of human uh, perception in a moment where it's a high stress situation, you know? Um, and there's, uh, yeah, anyway, it's, it's like, it's really hard for us as humans to remember details like that. Was the guy wearing a blue shirt or a red shirt? Uh, I don't, I don't know. You know, you think about that, it's just a, a split second moment that, in, I mean, any moment in your life, you go and get a cup of coffee somewhere, the person behind you in line, were they wearing a white shirt or a, you know, or a brown shirt? I don't know. I don't remember, you know, yeah. but if, if, but if they had a, they had some kind of distinctive feature, a beard or, or whatever. Okay. Well, can you, it, was it one of these people? Oh yeah. It kind of looked like that guy, but you know, it's the, it's just, it's impossible for us to, to do that. And that's why organizations like the innocence project started coming back and using DNA evidence to exonerate people because they had, they save uh, off, well, if they're doing their job correctly, they save evidence and things for a certain amount of time after a crime. And they're able to go back and say, okay, we can test the blood stains or we can test whatever, you know, uh, residue from this crime scene and do DNA tests and definitively know that person was not there. You know, yeah. th this is not, they do not match, that person's innocent. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a big, it's a big issue this this whole you know misidentification and and that's a big big issue yeah i i think that we're getting better getting closer at it i remember the 
the psychology study, and I was prepared for this when I took psychology in college. I only took like an entry level kind of elective class, but big auditorium style. You know, here's here are the very surface level basics to psychology, and I knew at some point this would likely come up. And I happened to be in class that day where someone comes in and pretends to like rob the professor or the the person teaching the lecture, and then they leave, and everyone's so stunned. But I knew it was coming, and so I was prepared. I was looking which hand are they holding the the implement with, and what color is their shirt and their hair, et cetera. And I liked in sort of like spy movies and stuff where in a scene of extreme tension and trauma, they'd be locked in going, blue shirts, one o'clock, watch on the left, you know, saying it to themselves like, remember this. And then that's what I was kind of trying to do. Even still, I had some issue, or I had some details of that person incorrect. And then when uh, I went in to do this lineup, I'm I'm looking, I go, I say to the person, I go, I have a photo on my phone of this person. The person that was taking the screens off stood there. And I was like, I got to get a photo of him. Okay. They were clearly not a threat. They were kind of out of their mind. But um, concerning, you see someone like trying to break into your house or it looks like it anyway. Right. And uh, I go, can I take my phone out? And they go, try to just do it with your mind first. I go, okay. Or with your memory first. So as I'm doing it, I'm looking and I'm like, I think this person is the closest. There are some features that are similar, but this person I'm looking at, this photo is a healthy person who's like well-groomed. The person doing this, they were emaciated, filthy, disheveled. And the the attending officer was just kind of like, yeah, that's drugs and stuff. That's what it'll do. Meaning that you've got the right guy, kind of a wink, wink. That That is that person. The person you saw is just them after the ravages of, and I thought, I made a little note. There's an area where you could write notes and I put like, I'm not a hundred percent. I think it looked like this person. I ended up seeing the person again a couple weeks later. And immediately I was like, that wasn't them in that photo. There's no way it was them in that photo. But in that moment, and there is, I was going to reference this documentary called Long Shot. It's about this episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm. And they have this person on trial about to be convicted and go away for life. And their defense team is like, wait, 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 you went to a Dodger game? Yeah, yeah, but I lost my ticket. I go all the time. I just chuck it. I paid cash or I got it from a friend. I don't have any receipts, but I was there. They knew there was a film crew that day shooting an episode of Kirby Enthusiasm. They're like, can we look at your raw footage? They go through, I don't want to say dozens of hours, but like multiple hours of B-roll of this Dodger game fan foot. And sure enough, they find the guy. That, that part's exciting. That's great. That's like the DNA exoneration. The other side is like he was about to go away for life with no no incriminating stuff other than someone down the street saying, I think it's him, and it was his brother who'd been murdered, so he had motive. Oh, motive and a kind of eyewitness. That's enough? That, that was baffling to me that that's enough. You'd hate yeah. if you are that family and your son had been murdered. And you'd like that feeling of closure. They caught it. It was it was that person's brother who did it. Oh, okay. Good. That makes sense. You'd like that feeling. But you'd much rather know they for sure got the right person. They have DNA. They've got video. They have all of these things beyond just, I think it was him. That was crazy to me. Sometimes in these cases, there is a lot of pressure on law enforcement to find somebody because you know the the family it might be a small town situation and the family they need closure the the community needs closure and so they're like okay we got to find somebody to pin this on you know i mean and that's it's not so much that that's what they're thinking but it's sort of there's a lot of pressure uh to to solve the case you know mm-hmm. and and there there are a number of instances where they just find somebody and force a confession on them yeah and and force confessions are um a huge problem and, and lead to a lot of, uh, forced, you know, forced coercion and false confessions from the, from the person. And so like in our, in our show, we have a scene that's an interrogation scene. And I used, I found, I knew that we, I knew that I wanted to put an interrogation scene in the show. We thought like, that's a really good idea. And the way that I work with my partner is often one of us will come up with an idea sort of a half-baked idea, and then, you know, sort of halfway flesh it out, send it to the other, and then he would come back with with his. So in this case, I had the idea, okay, we're going to do uh, an interrogation that's, you know, and it, it should be the idea is that we're going to reflect on this on this concept of false confessions, that they, conv- they confess to something that they didn't do, and why would you do that? And what, 
you know, what situation would, you know, elicit that response? You know, what kind of pressure would you have to be under? And so um, I started looking at transcripts of actual uh, interrogations that led to false confessions. And I found one. Uh, it was from the early 90s, somewhere in Florida. That the, the details don't really matter. But what was so strange about it was it was, I mean, pages and pages and pages and pages of this confession, uh, of this interrogation. And the officers that were interrogating kept asking the person about a dream. Tell us about the dream that you had and how far were you from the door and what, you know, and it just, and it kept coming back. Tell us about that dream you had. And so what I decided to do with this piece is make a, um, an interrogation scene where I just repeated, I had, I don't remember how many sentences, let's say there were 10 sentences and I would repeat the first sentence and then one, two, and then one, two, three, one, two, three, four, all the way until you get to the end and then contract it back down. So by the time you got to the end of it, you were ready to sign the confession. <laughs> you know, we, we wanted to make the audience uncomfortable. And this is what, you know, this was the goal was to see like, how uncomfortable can you be? We timed it. It's like, it's just long enough that it's, it's not too long, but it's long enough that you're uncomfortable. And then, and then the piece ends with the, with the confession. And, uh, but that was a really bizarre one. And I was just, I was, it's crazy that I found that one, but like, tell us about the dream you had. I mean, can you imagine you, you actually, you had mentioned that you had some dream and it's, it's eerily like this murder that happened. And that's what got you, you know, yeah. I don't know, just weird, weird stuff like that happens. But that was in a case study of interrogations that led to false confessions and like, you know, it was in some law study about, you know, looking at the particulars of that case and why this happened and yada, yada. But that was the, that was actually the transcript that we used. That's terrifying. And also, uh, it is really interesting. It, I think when it, when everyone was captivated by making a murderer, you saw a little bit of that happening there. I didn't see, I didn't see that one. Oh, okay. So, you know, it, it, touches on a lot of these things of interrogation tactics and, you know, sometimes the feeling of, uh, things that we might like. And if we watch a, a cop show, a police drama, and they go, we know it's them. Well, maybe we, you still have that CI, that criminal informant, right? Maybe they can uh, go over and drop some evidence and then we can get that and detain it. If, if we like our heroes and we know, like we've already seen footage of this person doing the crime and man, they were good at it. We kind of like that our heroes would use a tactic to just kind of circumvent the law a little bit in a weird way. And it doesn't, I'm not sure that the interrogation tactics are that, are just flat out terrible and have always been. Why were they, you know, it'd be like um, torture methods used in uh, in war, things that we uh, treat, uh, um a world community would get together at like a conference and say, let's agree. That's bad. Let's sign a treaty and no more of that. No more of this sort of torture to, to capture people. And we go, oh, okay, that, yeah, right. <laughs> I can't believe we used to do that. And we're, we're always moving out of those phases. Yeah. So the, for old timey, uh, detectives, oh, you gotta, you just keep hammering them with the thing. And then eventually they'll tell, tell you that's their purple fingerprints. That's their juice, juice on their face, juice on the toy. That was them. You're like, I don't know, if, if we had footage, if we could see it, maybe we'd find out another kid came by and wiped the juice on that kid's face. It's outlandish, but you just because you have juice on the face, juice on the toy, it doesn't it doesn't 100% guarantee it was that. That's why I keep asking them over and over. <laughs> tell me about the dream. Tell me about the dream. They'll tell you about the dream. And Making a Murderer kind of has elements of that. The Exonerated okay. Five, there's a, a Netflix uh, series about that and and a huge part of it is is just that the interrogation the exhaustion the people that don't know to ask for even just a public defender that don't know their rights that's right. been a big part of yep. like Colin Kaepernick's uh movement or or message is know your rights going to schools and just telling kids what do you do if this happens people that don't have access yep. to just the basic fundamentals of first amendment rights wouldn't know to say like I don't have to talk to you are you going to detain me or can I go? Yeah, that's one of the things that the um, Anna Vasquez, one, one of the exonerees that we worked with, that she's the subject of the documentary film that was made about our project. She's included in that and interviewed and part of her story is in there. Um, 
And that's one of the things that she says when she spoke to these students and we did a, a workshop with her and a series of discussions and performances and things. And she was, she was around and talking to these students at College Station at the Texas A&M and College Station. And she, you know, we're in there with big, big room of students. And she says, first thing she says is you need to know your rights. Like that is absolutely, she said, had I known uh, that stuff then, it, it might have been a different story. You know, she, she was convicted of, uh, uh, well, I, I don't know if we want to get into that whole story, but she was convicted of a crime she didn't do. And it was a, a, one of these false confession kind of issues. And um, it was uh, just, just heartbreaking, you know, so. One of the things we talked about last time in the Lost Tapes or the 20-minute the piece that I really liked is in, well, you talked about your partner being a, a, a professor of yours at, was it Temple's where you studied? Or were you in, you were in Pennsylvania? Where'd you go to school? Why am I, I went to school. <laughs> Sorry. Well, I did my graduate work at Cincinnati Conservatory my, and then yes, University okay. of North Texas. And then my bachelor's was at Stephen F. Austin State and also in Texas. I knew Cincinnati. Why was I saying Temple? I was Cincinnati's where I got my doctorate. Okay. Uh, and it was there that your one of your colleagues was someone that said, "Hey, I got approached with this idea, this Innocence Project thing." And you're that was my professor. My 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 professor uh, came to me with this project, and um, he had been invited to make some music for this opening of photography by Taryn Simon called "The Innocence," and he said, "You know, you're studying composition." we should work together on this. I think you would be a good fit for this project. And so I just, you know, embraced it. And then once we, once we got into it, um, you know, it became clear that this was actually a really important issue that we kind of stumbled into and we wanted to do it again. And we kept building on it and kept building on it. And then, you know, eventually um, we just over, that was, so that was 2006 um, when I was a doctoral student there is when we started it. And then we've, we, you know, every, every other year or something, some, something would come up that it would be the right fit. Some kind of program would come up and it would be like, Oh, this is a, our project would be a good fit for this. And then we had, we had a friend in, in Georgia, Stuart Gerber, a friend of ours, another percussionist who had a new music ensemble. And so he brought us to Georgia a few times. We expanded the piece then, excuse me. Um, we expanded the piece then. And then in 2016, we decided to, uh, Al was was nearing retirement from Cincinnati, and this was one of the projects that he really wanted to to do more. And uh, with teaching full time and being in the percussion group Cincinnati, which is another a really famous percussion group that he that he founded, um, he said, you know, let's we talked and let's let's see if we can make this an hour long thing, just the two of us. And our friend Stuart encouraged us with that too. He said, you know, you guys could take this and tour it, just the two of you, because it's much easier to just, if there's just two of you, you can get on the road, you can go play universities, you know, play in cities. And so, yeah, that's a pretty cool idea. So we, that's what we did. We expanded it to an hour. And um, like I said, he had just retired or was nearing retirement at Cincinnati and could do that. And so since then, yeah, we've been, it's been kind of the major uh, my major performing outlet for the last few years has just been tour making tours and doing, doing this show. Anyway, that's kind of the history of it. Yeah, no, I, I, I think we, we kind of went in reverse order last time we talked of talking about your studies and about, I had a friend who did her, I guess, thesis or her performance thesis in percussion and going out that's and right. playing the xylophones and then playing drums and playing different, you know, just showing like here, it was so, you know, watching video of it, like, what is this? Like, this is a PhD thing. And it was just a performance. And I'm sure people listening, you know, we're going, oh yeah, that's perfect. It's perfect striking of the, <laughs> the instrument there. But for that to turn into, I think where I started getting, when I just beforehand kind of prepped you into this, what I was thinking of is you were playing the chains. And I love that, that making chains a musical instrument uh, to fit the feeling. Like we talk about that yeah. a lot of like, when you have um, a movie and someone might say, just give me a feel here. Just give, I, this needs to feel like this. I don't know who would think of chains and how to make them sound musical and yet fit a feeling. But it, it, when you think of it, you're like, oh yeah, it's perfect. Yeah. Let me, let me unpack that a little bit. Cause I think I have a pretty good answer for this. So 
percussionists are kind of the outliers in the musical community. Like we're the last ones to kind of join the party, you know, we're the last <laughs> ones to like join the orchestra, you know, um, in, in terms of like Western, Western art music, drum and percussion cultures are, you know, of course, the oldest instruments, right? And we think of uh, percussive traditions in Africa or Indonesia, for instance, like, you know, percussion goes way back. But in Western music, it's relatively like we're late to kind of join the party, you know? Meaning, Symphony, meaning like if someone's putting together a composition or just in the structure? No, in the history of music. The history, like, okay. Yeah, in the history of music. When you think about orchestra music, right? Classical, Western classical music, percussion's the last ingredient to be added to the orchestra, all right? So like timpani were on horseback, right? And I often think about like the first time they decided some composer said, you know what, I think I'm going to include timpani drums with my orchestra piece, and they bring them in off the horse and set them in the back <laughs> of the hall. And, you know, can you imagine? So like, that's where we are. So percussionists are the outliers. So when, you know, when George Gershwin calls for taxi horns, they're not going to ask the first violinist to put down his $3 million violin and pick up some taxi horns and honk them. It's our job, you know? <laughs> so we're, we're sort of like always required to do that, be the outliers, do the weird stuff, you know, and uh, Mahler, uh, Gustav Mahler has a, has an, a big uh, uh, symphony, uh, Symphony 6, where there's a hammer of fate. And it's like, it's the percussionist job to build a, a big box, construct a giant hammer and like play the hammer on this box. And it's all, it's all psycho, it's a psychological idea. Like the sound of it is almost secondary to the, to the, object and the psychological presence of this big hammer you know <laughs> so that's where this whole thing with percussion comes from so and then you've got people like composers like john cage who sort of welcomed in non-musical sound in as an option for a composer to use uh, okay goes goes really <laughs> deep from there i right. picture him just like with some bowling pins on a piano smashing it with a sledgehammer like John Cage is, you know, John Cage cast a huge shadow over me for many, many years because I was so in awe of his, uh, you know, his writing and his genius and all of this. And um, but fast forward to your question about, OK, how do you get from that to chant? You know, how do you get from playing xylophone, marimbas, timpani to playing chains? And it has to do with this all the idea of percussionist as an outlier. And it goes back to Mahler asking us to construct this hammer. Objects, percussion is a great way to connect, mm, you know, psychological ideas, emotional states with sound. And we can do that with actual objects. You know, I've played, there's pieces for flower pots. And one of the beauty of, you know, one of the beautiful things about playing this piece for flower pots is that anybody can come to that and almost it's almost as if i think i could play flower pots you know i sort of look at your flower pots differently after you hear that piece um and then with our with our piece with the innocence we started thinking about creating a sonic you know landscape of sounds that would psychologically connect us to this issue so we made a decision right away that we're not going to play you know, um, drums and percussion and big, you know, thousands of dollars worth of gear on the stage. We're not going to do that. We want this to have the same kind of poverty that might be reflected in someone off the streets that gets swept up into this issue. So there's a lot of like, there's cardboard boxes and junk, you know, um, just random junk things, but glass bottles and cans and things. Um, yeah. So, so all the, all the sounds that we, selected had some kind of psychological connection to the issue one of the big central moments in the piece is we we have this uh setup of rocks and hammers and we're hammering on these rocks along with the recording that was a field recording of alan lomax from the 1940s of this prison gang breaking rocks and we just break rocks along with them on this recording and uh that's one of the things that people often would come up to us after shows and just say, oh, that was so powerful when you were breaking the rocks and it, it creates this dust. And uh, that's uh, on the trailer for the film. He, he captures that moment really well. With I was going to say, I'm like, I've seen that. You sent me the trailer. Yeah, I've seen that. Yeah, and it is yeah. cool. Yeah. Yeah, and the, so, the, the yeah. it's barren too, where you are. The stage isn't full of a lot of stuff. It's you're you're if I'm remembering correctly, it's just kind of you guys doing that. So there's an openness of like it draws your attention to to just that 
Yeah, it's a pretty minimal kind of setup. Like I said, there's no there's no big instruments on the stage. It's just, you know, there's a and it's kind of mod, you know, set up in different scenes. So like in the middle is the rocks and then right behind that is a a table where we do the interrogation scene and then we have some solo moments where I'm on stage right, he's on stage left with different setups. Uh, but like cardboard boxes and, you know, handheld things. It's nothing is really um you know, it's all object oriented. And we had, there was some, somebody came up to us after a show one time. There's this uh, segment that we do where we play this little dinner bell where we're playing on the box, the top of the cardboard box, and then we stop and hit this dinner bell. And he was, he, he had this whole idea, this whole thing that he had worked out about what the bell means and, and all this stuff. And we didn't think of it that way. I just needed another sound. That the would, bell you know, is his kinda... soul. Think about yeah. that when you're. Yeah. You know, and he had this whole thing. It's like, wow, that's that's amazing. I never thought of that. But <laughs> that's the beauty. That's to me why I love percussion so much because we get to do that. You know, and I don't want to discourage someone who plays the violin. To I mean, they should make pieces about socio, you know, socio political issues as well if they want. But for us, it's we get to play in this wider world of psychological sound, you know, objects connected to psychology. And that makes you think of a certain thing as well as being a sound in the piece. And, you know, there's a lot of depth, a lot of depth there that percussion has that, that other instruments uh, don't have. John Cage told, said once that he wished that all the instruments in the orchestra could experience the poverty of the percussion section, which is <laughs> <laughs> <Just> pretty good. <laughs> I like that. That makes a lot of sense now that I think about it. I think of um, you drop something off a counter maybe and the way it hits the floor might and you you can hear I hear this all the time like oh that's the exact same maybe not key or but the the rhythm of it is exactly like the first three drum beats of this song that I know or something and then I'll spend a lot of time placing it like yeah that was that. I'll hear just a certain uh little action i guess i think of like that's the sound of a man working who ah kink. like you're hearing like the, the you know like those sounds it's the percussion there of that action like the hammer hitting the thing that that drive like the rhythm of that show but you can also hear like feet shuffling in the dirt and i think that you know we um is it peter and the wolf you know with the oboe that gives a lot more whimsical kind of fun but there's a an attachment to that character yeah. But if we were trying to give uh, a different texture or layer to it, we'd probably have some percussion that was tension or a building, like a storm's coming. And yeah, when I was uh, a kid in Reno, you know, shows would come through and play at the casinos, and, I, and something similar. I don't know if it was Stomp, but it was like similar to Stomp. And for whatever reason, I think this is where this memory comes from. Someone playing a broom just sweeping along, but I hated it because they were making the sound of the broom, but they were so intense on it. They didn't look like they were actually sweeping. It was just like staring straight ahead. And then it was their cue, very focused. And, and I just remember like, what, who sweeps like that? It's, <laughs> so that like that marriage, that interplay of percussion or, or the, those actions, like the poverty of doing them, the, to me, there has to something that has to be folded into them is like a realness or a believability because sometimes they are so heavy or so banal. Sweeping is yeah. a pretty like boring task, but so no one sweeps with eyes dead ahead, never blinking. It just didn't fit for me, and maybe that was it. Or like, ah, this isn't connecting with me. The sound if I was just closing my eyes, I'm like, this sounds pretty good. That that broom adds a nice element. Yeah. Yeah, I, I find this whole, the whole thing, I mean, I could talk for hours about this, what I do, right, as a classically trained percussionist, you know, st studied in all of the history of Western art music. And I, I think it's totally fascinating how percussion enters and then how it, how it sort of filters through and, and finds us today. It's totally fascinating. And like I often tell this story to my students in, because I teach a, a percussion literature class where we talk about the history of the percussion in the orchestra. And I, you know, we, I, I give them an example of the triangle and this is going to get real deep. All right, Dave. So stay with me. All right. <laughs> I'm buckled in. Okay. The triangle. Okay. Where does the triangle come from? The triangle came from Turkey. All right. And there were these uh, Turkish military bands around the time of the Crusades. 
and they had triangles and symbols. In fact, the symbol company that we know that all the, you know, every drummer that you see, Zildjian Symbols, that's a Turkish company. You know, I mean, a Turkish name came from originally from Turkey. Okay, so the um, these instruments, I'm going to focus on the triangle, is part of this uh, Turkish military band called the Janissary Band. So these bands um, were military bands. Eventually, they served more of a, you know, diplomatic uh, function later on. And so around the time of uh, Haydn and Mozart, these bands were coming to Europe and playing on the town square. And these composers were seeing this going, wow, that's really exotic and interesting. And I think I want to include some of those sounds in my or my next symphony. So we get cymbals and triangles and bass drums enter into the orchestra. Uh, so you get something like Mozart's abduction from the seraglio, where you get the triangle, ding, 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 ding. All right, so then fast forward to Liszt, this great pianist Liszt, and he wrote a piano concerto. And in this piano concerto, he includes the triangle. Uh, I should say this, in Mozart, Haydn, Beethoven, when you hear the triangle, it's referencing Turkish military music, or, if, or it's referencing militarism writ large. So you get percussion as a referential idea. It's referencing something else already, even then. All right. Just fast forward to List, which is uh, you know a few 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 hundred years later or so, uh, and List is writing a piano concerto, and he includes the triangle, and the triangle has this solo moment, ding ding, just opposite of the piano, and he loved the sparkly idea of the triangle being mixed in with the piano, so that to me there is a hinge point where. Now he started thinking of the triangle not in reference to militarism or or trying or exoticism or something like that. Now it's just a beautiful sparkly color that he likes to have in his in his piano piece. Fast forward another hundred years or so later, and you have this very adventurous composer named Alvin Lussier, who writes a triangle solo piece called Silver Streetcar of the Orchestra. And it's for a solo triangle, and you're just playing the triangle for I don't know how long the piece is long, ten minutes, twelve <laughs> minutes. Ding 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 ding. And you're you're touching it in different places to produce harmonics so that you're hearing all the overtones of this triangle and it turns into this whole, you know, orchestra in itself. Imagine so you if have, you were just walking yeah. by someone's yard and you saw them in the back sitting at their table, like they have a picnic table outside, and they're practicing their 10-minute-long harmonics, triangle-driven <laughs> symphony piece. Ding, 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 ding. And they're just exactly. touching it. Ooh, go yep. touch it here. Ding, 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 touch. This is my life. This is my <laughs> life, Dave. This is what my neighbors, right? Uh, one of my teachers... Uh, beautiful uh, dear friend of mine passed away recently Christopher Dean he told this story he wrote a vibraphone piece vibraphone you know what a vibraphone is a metal metallic instrument keyboard oriented and he's doing all these things with bows playing the bars with with you know with cello bows and bending the pitches and it's going Ooh, you know all these really strange sounds and this was in North Car he was in North Carolina at the time and his neighbor comes over and you know sees him playing the vibraphone <laughs> So they exchange an awkward, you know, moment, <laughs> glance there, and the guy's like, are you going to borrow your mower? <laughs> just when totally you're done with ignores. the uh, whatnot here? Yeah. <laughs> when you're done with that, can I borrow your mower? <laughs> you know? um, but yeah, that's our life, man. I but, think that there's a little glimpse there into what I love the most about humanity and its ability to exist with each other and be maybe the, maybe the... <clears throat> The mower guy is kind of a Hank Hill quintessential who we think of, or maybe a bad version of Hank Hill who's judgmental and going to summon like the town charter and, and members of the homeowners association to like remove this freak of nature, this person who plays these bows and makes a mockery of music. Or uh, wh what was the neighbor doing? He's over playing, I don't know, his bow or something, but damn, his mower runs good. And you just move <laughs> on. He's doing his thing. I'm doing my thing. We share this. Both love a good mower. That's to me. That's the best humanity can do. It's I, I, there's something in that I really like. That's exactly it. Yeah, yeah. So I, I kind of interrupted at the triangle though, but like the, you know, the triangle entering being just a reference point or like a, a little nod to percussion, and then 
eventually moving to where like you're the star friend it's your big yeah. moment 10 minutes right, harmonics right. Well, gentle touching <laughs> the idea that it goes from <clears throat> referencing something else some other idea and you know you mentioned like hearing a hearing a something fall you know percussion is used all the time for sound effects you know you look at the early early radio plays i mean all of those sound effects were things that percussionists were figuring out you know like how to how to make thunder sheets and all of that kind of stuff there's all kind of really interesting uh things like that but percussionists are the ones that are generally doing that i guess that was sort of my point way back was you know that we're we're sort of the outliers we're the we're the strange you know we're always asked to do the weird stuff (laughs) (laughs) you're wearing a black t-shirt as we speak and earlier this occurred to me that it how you were describing percussion reminded me a lot of stage crew they're so vital there's a teamwork element there's kind of we make the show go on and i did stage crew i think when i was a freshman in high school and i loved being a part of the team and you have the actors out in front in the lights first chair violin shredding the the pianist playing and standing up to a big bow and the crowd going crazy and behind the scenes you're maybe on a little walkie-talkie or a little earpiece or something going like we need that stool move it move it move it lights cut you know and it's that's what's making the whole show happen and you just exist and like happy to be here you don't need to focus on me sometimes you go we'll go to like the hollywood bowl and watch the symphony and there is that giant huge upright drum you, you forget about it. you see it and you go ooh, and then all eyes go to the piano or the violinist and then boom you're like i knew it friend i didn't forget about you <laughs> you're kind of it's it's like a plot device you see it it's like Chekhov's gun or something you know it's there and then you forget about it for a bit and then when it comes in you're like ah oh, good i was hoping i'd get to hear from you tonight that's a good point that's a good point yeah 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 that's right <laughs> well let's take a little break if you're cool with it and then we'll pick sure. back up well i hope that was worth the wait and part two will come out shortly you got to hold me to that. I will, uh, I sometimes just, uh, and it's a lot of times it's just doing these little, uh, bumper things, the interstitial things in between where I just, uh, I should just put out the chat cause I don't even think these things are necessary. I think looking at your app and seeing who the guest is would be plenty. You don't need to hear me be like, now I'm about to sit down and chat with someone, but buckle up. It's a lot like, um, when you call someone and they don't answer and then their voicemail treats you as if you've never heard of the concept of leaving a message. Hello, I didn't get to my phone. I'm away from it. If you'll do me the favor and go ahead and leave a message, I'll try to call you back. Why are we still saying that? How many years, decades are going to go by where we... And here we are doing it on a podcast. I'm about to sit down and have a chat with so-and-so. I think in this aspect, there's a little bit more need for it. But even still, in the future, I think when I'm just... uh, a little short on time and or energy to do the little interstitial things, I'll just release the chat and you'll have to figure it out. And if there are complaints, let me know. I don't hear a lot from Space Cave listeners. I feel like people that enjoy this show uh, do it very privately and quietly, and that's great. If you do have complaints, feel free to message pings at thespacecave.com. This is supposed to be a nice, safe, quiet space. It's a rough world out there. Always seems to be some new bit of bad news beyond uh, rights of autonomy over your own person and not to get too much into things like that. Our thoughts go to, and yes, our thoughts, send some positive energy to our friend Jean Hospod, who was running from a shooting and broke her foot. That's the world we live in. That's this hellish nightmare. You're hearing uh, loud noises in the distance as I do this because it is a round Independence Day as I'm recording, and to people that have served in the military and noises like that trigger some PTSD, apologies. It's just a weird way that people celebrate a lot of uh, unpredictable, unexpected, loud bangs for whatever reason is are meant to show some level of enthusiasm. Uh, I just want to look out over a field of grass that's gently swaying or maybe a pond with some ducks gently floating by. That feels nice. Let's try to create that environment in here with a nice warg, a warm hug. Come on in. Let's escape it a little bit. Have conversations that take us away from situations like Jean experienced. And anyway, if you send some positive energy her way, um, she's a good person. And art by Jean Hospod. 
I think is her is how to get in touch with her on any social media if you want to send a little note and say, hey, I hope you're feeling better and healing up. But that is um, a difficult scenario to be involved in, to even hear about, to know that it exists, to know that it's regularly happening. You live on one place in the world where that is essentially something you might have to think about any given moment of your life. That is a high level of anxiety and it's it's understandable that mental health right now seems to be at uh, an all-time precarious spot. I wouldn't say low or uh, I don't know what the right word is there. But it is certainly deserving of attention and make sure your friends are doing okay. Give people a hug. Check in with loved ones. Even if people act like things are okay, I think they're shouldering a pretty tough burden to pretend that things in the current state of the world are just peachy. Anyone that acts that way, uh, whew, bless their soul. But lots of good things out there. Sunshine, friendships, art, entertainment, beauty. Hopefully you're experiencing some of those things. Speaking of which, let's get out of here. Uh, oh, and before we do, uh, I'll talk more on the Patreon about maybe some of these things, a little bit more about big nothingness. Like I mentioned, there will be that John Lane extended um or remnants of the first chat that was uh, destroyed somehow by a power outage. Just felt like things weren't on our side. But a great chat nonetheless. So thanks to those of you who do support the show on Patreon. It is made possible by contributions from listeners just like you. Bonus content, behind-the-scenes things, ramblings like this that are a little bit more cohesive. Okay, some beauty. Let's get out of here. This is a song by Japanese Breakfast. It's called Slide Tackle. I hope you like it. Thanks for stopping by the Space Cave.